welcome to the 65th episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Along with my co-host, Professor Jaydeep Prabhu, I host the podcast to explore the links between climate change and food security. Hi, I'm Jaydeep Prabhu. I'm a professor of marketing at Cambridge Judge Business School, and I'm delighted to be doing this podcast with Sanjay. Our guest for today is Sonali Figueres, the founder of Green Queen Media, award-winning impact and media platform advocating for social and environmental change. Welcome, Sonali. Hi, Sanjoy. Hi, Jaydeep. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about your education and early career. What prompted you to start Green Queen Media? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, my education and my early career didn't prompt the start, but I would say they both provided all the tools and training that have become super useful for me on the journey. What actually led me to create Green Queen is I had health issues that I was not able to get adequate support for through the traditional medical system. Doctors weren't listening. My conditions were quite unknown. They mostly affect women. So there wasn't a lot of research and I was misdiagnosed a few times. So I ended up like the good liberal arts student that I am in the hands of Google and my own research, which was around the time when Google search came about, which for me was a very happy moment. And I basically ended up learning about food and how food could help some of my issues. And of course, being a very curious person, I delved deeper. And from what I could eat, it became how is the food sourced and where does it come from? And that led me to understanding things about soil health and agricultural systems and water pollution and just all of that put together. And I was sort of flabbergasted at how I had never been taught any of these things in school, in university, by my parents. Doctors had never mentioned it. And I didn't read about it much in the mainstream media. So I just got addicted to learning about food systems. And eventually I hit upon the famous FAO report, Livestock's Long Shadow, around the connection between livestock agriculture and in global greenhouse gas emissions. And that just also kind of stimulated another part of the journey, which was this connection between food systems and the climate crisis. And that's culminated in where we are today with Green Queen. But my early career in education, I grew up in Hong Kong. I went to international schools. I, there were three years where I was in Singapore as well. I ended up going to university in the US and I double majored in comparative literature and cultural anthropology. Then I did something very usual and went to work on Wall Street. <laughs> I went into finance and eventually management consulting and real estate. And I sort of did some of those jobs for a while, but all the jobs involved what I would call due diligence and risk analysis, which are extremely useful skills that have served me incredibly well as a journalist and as an editor. And as someone who has created a media platform trying to advocate for change and trying to fight misinformation and trying to also choose and curate the stories 
that we platform because that's really my job as the editor. Now I have a team. I don't write content anymore day to day, but I'm the editor and I have to decide what are we covering? I do that thanks to a lot of research. And then of course, understanding kind of what's important and what are, what ideas and what facts are we trying to get across to our audience and why? Such an interesting journey and quite remarkable uh, how you put all your skills and training and your own personal experiences together to start Green Queen. And so I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about Green Queen Media, because my understanding is there is a focus on Asia, but this is really quite global as well in the new food industry. Yes, absolutely. So it's been a long journey where we've been around now for almost 12 years. It actually started out as a blog and more about kind of green and ethical living in Hong Kong. So not really with a plan to be a global media at the start. While that was interesting for a while, I'm I'm naturally someone who enjoys sharing information and I wanted to share what I was learning on my journey about foods I was eating and, and what companies I was coming across. And, and also eventually that led to, you know, I started getting an awareness about things like plastic waste and, and just waste in general and just overconsumption. And so all of these things were useful topics that I could share about, especially at the time in Hong Kong, there were very few resources. And I believe we are the first sustainability media platform to have started in Asia in terms of like earliest. And so that's how it started. But very quickly, to be frank, the health and wellness world felt a little too commercial to me. And what really attracted me was the news and and kind of the food systems part. And so I started covering more around that across Asia. I definitely felt having lived in the States and lived in, in London, I felt like the UK media and the US media have so much to give in terms of information about all these topics. But there was really nothing in Asia. And I was coming across interesting companies, organizations, NGOs, activists, change makers, who I felt were doing something across Asia and were not getting platformed. And so that's how the Asia news kind of side started. And then eventually when I read that report around livestock and emissions, and I started to really see the connection between food and climate, it really became important to me to become a center of news for food system change with regards to the climate. I saw that there was a lot of media around changing your diet from an ethical point of view. There was a lot around health and and we still cover both those things. But for me, the real connection was, okay, the climate crisis is getting worse but it's going to start affecting us every day. It's going to affect how companies do business. It's going to affect what we eat. How can I get ahead of this? And how can I offer a global audience by writing in English? And how can I give this kind of Asian perspective to some of these topics, especially as you all know, 60% of the world's population lives in Asia. And this is where we're going to see a lot of population growth, demographics change as hundreds of millions enter the middle classes, which is going to affect what they eat, what they buy. Asia also lacks agricultural land, has a water crunch. I really saw that all of these things were going to create a confluence of of factors that was going to basically cause food to become, you know, a national security issue. 
And that's exactly what has happened. And so I wanted to have a platform to talk about that and to report on that. I also wanted to talk about hope. And the way that I wanted to do that was to platform innovation. And because of the other things I'm involved in, including a organic trade platform where we connect a certified organic suppliers with buyers. I was getting the chance to attend food conferences all over the world. And I was meeting farmers and processors and brands and and investors. And I was seeing kind of early on what was trending. And that's when I started to see future food innovation and alternative protein brands that were just kind of at their start. And I thought this is a different way to think about reducing animal product consumption. And I want to talk about it. And I want to make sure that Asia has a seat at the table. That was the main way that we've changed. And today we are really one of the leading out of a handful, one of the leading medias in the world to talk about future food innovation, alternative proteins, food system change. The second thing that we're trying to do now, which is something that's become incredibly important to me in the last 18 to 24 months, is that we are trying to make food as important as energy and transport and weather in the climate conversation. Because unfortunately, food is completely left out of the conversation in the mainstream media, in policy, in just general awareness, even in climate education. And I'd love to hear your views on that, but it's just left out. And COP is coming up, COP28. It's the first time there's an official food day. Last year was the first time there was a food pavilion. So, I mean, food is just ignored and it doesn't make sense from a numbers and data point of view. And as I shared about my background, I'm very led by data. I always look at data first. And the data is very simply, one third of our global greenhouse gas emissions are caused by food systems. And we don't allocate one third of our funding, of our attention, of the media narrative to food. And so it's become very important to me for Green Queen to be one of the platforms. And that's, I very much call ourselves an impact media. So we have an agenda and the agenda is really to make food a key part of the climate conversation. I think that the point that you're making about food not being part of the climate conversations is right. I mean, I do have to point out also that the IPCC AR6 chapter on Asian adaptation, you know, it called out food security in Asia as a big concern. And in fact, that's what has led Jadeep and myself to start this podcast series. There is Of course, understanding that this is a big concern in Africa as well. You're right, Sonali, there is not enough attention from it from a reducing the emission standpoint. But I think there is reasonable awareness from an adaptation standpoint if we have to make that distinction. I'll take you up on that comment that you have already made about the FAO report. And I'm going to ask you to help explain to our audience what essentially is broken with the current food system, in your opinion. I do want to come back to what you said earlier. My point is not that there is no one talking about food and climate. But again, if you look at the amount of money we're spending to actually create change or investing in solutions, right? Or if you look at policy around climate across the world, while there are a few bright spots, for example, Singapore, most of the data shows that not at all enough is being done, given the the immense size of the problem and given the proportion, again, of emissions that food systems cause. So yes, there is a lot more awareness around food security. And especially in the last two years, we have seen multiple world 
challenges, even if you look at four years ago, because of the pandemic, that was really the first time that, you know, the world came to a stop in every single way for the whole globe. And certainly it disrupted many food supply chains. And that was a real kind of lesson to the world. Like, wow, we're not ready for food supply disruption. And we're we're such a globalized world that it, we're so dependent on imports that for many countries, they're just not self-sufficient. So yes, that kick-started very much a movement towards food sovereignty and self-sufficiency. Um, certainly, if you look at you know the Chinese government, that is top of their list. And usually most governments that, that do central planning, they are looking at this. But I would still push back that overall, if you look at how much money is being spent, and if you look at the mainstream media, and if you ask the average person what needs to be done to fight the climate crisis, unfortunately, food often doesn't make the top five, if not the top 10. So that's one thing. The second part of your question, there's just so much broken with the global food system. And certainly there's so much information out there about why, but but it's still food being such a primal kind of personal kind of subject. It's so different to talk about food than let's say cars, right? We talk a lot about electric cars and moving to electric cars, but food is something we all do other than breathing every day. And we have to do it, eating to survive. So it's very different than anything else. And food is is just wrapped up in culture and identity and tradition. So it's very difficult to often talk about food system change. But what is clear is that the way that we produce food today is mired in issues with regards to, first of all, emissions. It's just, as I said, so the global food systems take up about 33 percent of emissions. So it depends what data you're looking at. It goes from 25% to 35%, but I'll just call it one third. Then if you talk about livestock, which takes up the lion's share of that. It, so industrial livestock agriculture accounts for, and again, the data is, is wide here, but between 11 and 22% of emissions. Honestly, more and more data is showing that it is closer to the 20%. That's just a huge amount. And the reason is, Livestock requires a lot of land. It requires a lot of water, a feed. So we use a ridiculous percentage of agricultural land to grow feed to give to this livestock. And a lot of times that land is taken away from wildland. And that's where we have things like mass extinction, biodiversity loss, a loss in sequestered carbon as we change Amazonian rainforest to soy fields, right? And then there is the water issue between one fourth and one third of all water is used for the livestock industry. That's such an issue. It's not that we're going to run out of water per se. It's that we're going to run out of the water where we use it and we're going to need to reapportion it. And there is going to be water scarcity, especially for agriculture. And we have an issue with things like clean water and we have an issue with getting water to where it's needed and just in general, farmers and agriculture are going to have to learn how to adapt in a world where water is just going to be a much more valuable commodity. That's a big one. Obviously, land, we are running out of land in general of where we can actually grow more food. And what's going to happen over the next few years as extreme weather events push our agricultural systems to the limit is that we're going to have crop competition. So what should we grow on and where? 
and how much land, arable land, which is land that is suitable for growing food crops, how much land do we have from which countries and for which crops? Um, and that's just going to create so many problems. And, and when you look at the return on investment for livestock and the calories that it gives you at the cost that you need for one calorie of meat versus one calorie of plant, it just, it doesn't make sense. And yet we have become just overly reliant on eating animal foods multiple times a day. And the other problem is that as people get richer, they seem to want to eat more animal products. And the two worst is beef, but also dairy. So dairy is right up there, but it's not the only two. For example, shrimp farming, aquaculture is hugely problematic from an emissions and environmental point of view. And, and from the fact that it's often done on coastal areas. And so it takes away wild mangrove areas that are really useful for, for carbon sequestration and other kind of climate fighting needs. So just there's so many things wrong with the way that we grow food. And that's because everything has been optimized for shareholder value and for the ultimate kind of return on calorie at the expense of everything else. It's clear that the challenges seem almost too daunting to do much, but I like what you said earlier about the story of hope as well and innovation. So I wonder if we could switch gears and talk a little bit about that, because it seems like there's a lot happening, for instance, with plant-based meats. We seem to be making pretty good progress on the supply side. Companies are raising money, they're getting products to market. What about customer acceptance, though? Do you see signs of change on that front? Yeah, so customer acceptance is interesting. I want to take a step back. There, there is a lot going on, and plant-based meats are, in terms of innovation and solutions, plant-based meats are is one area. It is certainly by no means the only area. It is an area that has gotten a lot of attention in the media, first very positively, now not so much. I would say that if you look at where we've come compared to 10 years ago with regards to plant-based meat and its availability on supermarket shelves and restaurants and just generally giving people alternatives for the foods that they love and want to eat that come in at a fraction of the environmental cost because they are made from plants. I think the progress is enormous. I think the media is often dominated by one or two companies. And that's a real miss because there are over a thousand companies in the plant-based space. They are all different. They are all serving different customer needs and they are all really coming at it to give people options. And that's incredibly important. What a lot of the media narrative will share is that we seem to, in certain markets like the US or the UK, we seem to have reached a bit of a cap in terms of growth. That by no means should be taken to mean that plant-based meats are over or that it's not working. Again, let's look at where we are today. 10 years ago, if you wanted plant-based sushi, you were out of luck. You know, 10 years ago, if you went to Burger King in Europe and you didn't want to eat meat, you were out of luck. All of these kind of solution moments have been served and that's huge progress. What's missing is one, not all the options I would say are where they should be from a taste and texture point of view. So that's like food enjoyment. So there's a lot of work to be done, but that makes sense. A lot of these companies are less than five years old. So you would expect that it takes longer to get where we need to get Two, there's a price issue for a lot of people. They just can't afford the premium that a lot of these brands come in at. And that's a very fair piece of feedback and something that we need to work on. It's a bit of a, 
it's a bit of a chicken egg situation because obviously companies want a lower cost, so they need to scale. They can't scale if, if there isn't the demand. Lots of companies work on that. I would say to counter that though, if you look at countries like Germany, where plant-based meats are incredibly affordable and are available in private label varieties in most supermarkets, if not all, and with each supermarket having hundreds of options that are plant-based alternatives for the animal version, you see that there is a much higher uptake of those products because they are available and they are affordable. So again, we know that in places where they're available and affordable, people are buying them. And then the third thing I would say is going back to one of my earlier points, there's just a knowledge gap in why these products exist and why they're needed and what a difference you can make as an individual towards fighting the effects of the climate crisis by choosing one of these alternatives once or twice a week. That understanding seems obvious maybe to us in this conversation, but it is not at all obvious to the average person. And that is because there just still isn't enough awareness. So this is obviously very interesting. The awareness will grow, in my opinion, as uh, more mainstream customers will come in. But one thing that you said, Sonali, there are a thousand players in this market. And all the interviews I've done seem to indicate that it's not very difficult for companies to take get products into the marketplace. In a situation like this, typically, what happens is there is a competition, a sort of bloodbath, a lot of companies go bankrupt. And then, of course, a few companies emerge, which become market leaders. Is that what you see for the sector in the plant-based meat sector? before we move to the other sectors? I think that narrative is very dominated by the West. I think that we will see different things play out across the world. I think there's ample space for more players, for better tasting products, for more um, formats that are served to local markets. For example, what Indian consumers need and what Thai consumers need is different than what US consumers need or what German consumers need, or what Nigerian consumers need. So I think we need to allow space for solutions that serve certain needs. You know, I was interviewing a range of plant-based entrepreneurs at the Agri-Food Summit in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, and I had someone from the Philippines and someone from China and someone from Australia. And it's interesting to me because they all had a very different reason for why they were doing what they were doing. And and they were all serving different needs that were specifically adapted to their local markets. And the motivations, each of their local market average consumer or, or typical consumer was very different. That shows you that there is no one Beyond Burger for the whole world. The Beyond Burger is a very American product that works in a very American environment and culture. I think the narrative that you suggested, it remains a very Western narrative. And that's because, again, the media focuses too much on a handful of companies. But I think there's space still for lots of innovation and lots of interesting new formats. And and one topic that is coming to mind more and more as I interview more and more people in this space is people are even saying, why are we even trying to mimic meat exactly or animal foods exactly? Why can't we just create new formats that are plant-based so that are better for the planet and that are delicious and that are just different. This idea that the foods that we eat today are the foods that we've always eaten is completely untrue. Most of the diet that a lot of us are now used to in cities and in the global north are the product of just 
30 or 40 years of big food innovation. Before that, everyone on the planet ate quite differently. And so who's to say that we can't have another few decades ahead of us where we kind of change the paradigm and and our plates start to look totally different. And I'm hearing this more and more as the plant-based movement goes through its first few changes and kind of faces its early challenges and goes through like the S curve of that everyone talks about kind of like now it's the hype has died down. So like who will survive and how will we progress? I'm seeing more and more founders and entrepreneurs saying to me, yeah, we're just, we're creating our own path forward. We're just, we're creating products that are delicious, that are better for the planet. And and we're not using big meat as our, as our basis for, as our standard. And I think you're going to see more of that. So that's absolutely right. And maybe if you can talk a little bit about that German experience that you talked about, number of private labels in a typical supermarket, and that seems to be driving down prices. I thought that was very interesting. Right. So Germany in general is just a really fascinating case study as a country, I think, because if you look at it today, and again, it's based on data from surveys, but it's quite interesting and it's quite consistent. Germans are now around 55% self-declared flexitarians, 10% vegan, according to the latest numbers. And interestingly enough, they are actually consuming less meat overall. So meat consumption is actually going down, which is different than what we see in other markets where customers may be eating plant-based foods, but they're also still eating animal foods in greater amounts. So this is very interesting. What is Germany doing differently? One thing is Germany has these incredibly innovative supermarket chains which have now traveled all over the world, Aldi, Lidl, these type of things. Uh, The famous Trader Joe's in the US is actually a German company. And they're just, they're very good at providing choice at an affordable price and providing value for the consumer. And the way that they do that is by doing a lot of private label where they just cut out the brand, which a lot of times is where a lot of the price margin comes in for marketing, advertising, branding, um, and design. And they just focus on a good product at a decent price. So that's a very German kind of retailer ethos that is is working. And actually, it's something they're exporting across the world as their supermarket brands do well elsewhere, especially these days when food inflation is so high and people are just looking for value. But it goes back to there is choice. The other thing that is important to understand about Germany is climate literacy is high. And this seems to be true across many Western European nations. So we see this in France. We see this in some of the Nordic countries. There is an awareness about the climate crisis that is table stakes. I do not see this as much in U.S. and Asian markets, where it seems like the climate crisis is either not as well understood or... It's not as much in people's top of mind. In Europe, people are aware and they're aware that reducing meat is a good thing for the climate. The other thing we see in Germany, which is super interesting, coming from an Asian background where we revere our elders and kind of never really talk back to them, is that there seems to be this kind of positive loop in Germany where younger generations are able to influence the food choices of older generations. 
And that is causing a change and a move towards a more flexitarian diet. And we just do not see this in Asia. And I don't know that this has been looked at carefully in the US, but we just don't see this. In in Asia, it's very much like, you know, it, there's a divide between the younger folks are, are being more interested in kind of innovative foods, but the older traditional folks are, no, we, we stick to our traditional diet. And there just doesn't seem to be that knowledge exchange in both ways. So that's very interesting about Germany. There's one more, it's policy. So the German minister for health and for health and nutrition actually goes out publicly and says, we need to reduce animal meat consumption. And that is just very different from any other country. It is changing. Denmark has now said it. Taiwan is now saying it. But I mean, Germany did this a few years ago. Germany is just, it's a fascinating case study. It's just different. So tonight, I mean, I'm wondering if we could talk about some of these other innovations. For instance, could we talk about precision fermentation and cultured meat? What progress are you seeing in these segments? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you asked because a lot of conclusions around plant-based meat get attributed to the rest of our toolbox for food innovation and food system change. I want to reiterate that it is a toolbox with many different tools and there is no one solution that is going to be the moonshot. There are many solutions that we need to work on and that need to work in tandem and that are going to work in different areas for different reasons and different geographies. So very important to explore kind of all the different tools. Just to be clear, alternative proteins or smart proteins, sustainable protein is one area of the future food tools we have. It's not the only area that we should look at, but within the realm of finding alternatives to animal protein, there is plant-based meat, there is precision fermentation, as you said. So what is that? That's basically programming microbes to produce proteins in a lab, in a bioreactor. So you're using the DNA. So for example, the DNA of whey protein from cows, and you're telling the microbe to recreate that same protein with the same DNA recipe. Just to be clear on precision fermentation, this is a technology that we actually use every day in our food and health system. So the best example I can give you is that it is the same technology that is used to make insulin for type one diabetics. So we used to get insulin from pigs, pancreas, which as you can imagine was difficult and not very sustainable. And then we were able to recreate insulin synthetically using this technique. Anybody you know that's type one diabetic is, is making use of precision fermentation. We also use precision fermentation to recreate certain flavor extracts and vitamin supplementations that, that we use to add to food products. Most of us are actually consuming foods with precision fermentation extracted flavors and extracts all the time. And then another big application is actually in cheese itself. Historically, cheese w- included rennet, which comes from cow intestines, basically in guts. And a few years ago, the commercial cheese industry moved to using synthetic rennet that is vegetarian friendly, not vegan friendly, but vegetarian friendly because it doesn't require a, a dead cow, right? To replace a lot of animal rennet. So while some very traditional cheeses still are made with animal rennet, something like 70 to 80% of commercial cheese uses 
precision fermentation derived rennet. So you're actually eating foods with precision fermentation all the time. It is a very interesting technology that is now being used to find alternatives to proteins, particularly egg proteins and dairy proteins. So the idea would be to recreate whey or casein or other proteins or, or albumin in eggs, ovoalbumin, in order to be able to get the same properties from those proteins and use them to make alternatives to cheese and eggs that don't require the animal. That is a precision fermentation, a growing area of interest. There are not as many companies as in plant-based, I would say like a hundred or so companies, maybe 150 all around the world with a few that are very well known, like a perfect day in the US is probably the most advanced and they have recreated whey using precision fermentation. And that's led to products like cream cheese or using it as a protein powder, very useful in the field of supplements and nutrition. So you can give people the, the protein powder that they want without the cow. And then you asked about cultured meat. That's another vertical in the alternative protein family. And that is the idea of taking an animal cell and essentially replicating it and growing it in a bioreactor in a medium of different kind of sugars and vitamins and nutrients. And that is of all the different strategies, that is the one that is the biggest moonshot, I would say, just in terms of how much scaling and how many resources it requires and how far away we, we are from it being a mass product. But it has been in the news a lot lately because the field has come a long way. And in, a, in the span of 10 years, where one professor in a Dutch university was able to recreate a cell-based burger patty for hundreds of thousands of dollars, we can now make cultured meat less than $10 a pound or something. Again, it's not scalable in terms of quantities, but this is where we're at. We're also at a point in time where two different governments have have approved the sale of cultured meat in Singapore and in the US. And we are looking at other governments potentially approving it soon. We've reached incredible progress in the regulatory sense. We have about 100 companies around the world working on this. 10 of which I would say are the leaders in terms of how long they've been doing this and and how deep of a progress that they've made. But certainly there's just a lot to be excited about because you're essentially recreating animal flesh and the parts of the animal that we want to eat without having to grow an entire animal. It all comes down to this idea that it's just not very efficient to have to grow an entire living being to eat certain parts of it. And so that's where we are on, on, on culture meat. Sonali, one uh, concern that I have, a really question that I have is that in Singapore or in the United States, would people get confused between an impossible foods burger or a, an upside food burger? Absolutely. So first of all, there is no upside foods burger because they work on chicken, but people are already getting confused. And this is where I will share my personal critique of where we have not been very effective as a future food and alternative protein industry. I do believe it seems like it's finally getting across now. I don't think that we've done a good job at communicating about the industry, at educating consumers, and at dealing with the demand side. In our industry, across all verticals, there has been too much of this attitude of build it and they will come put it on the shelf and they will come. 
Um, so first of all, for precision fermentation and for cultured meat specifically, it's not on the shelf. There is no cultured meat in any supermarket in the world. So there's nothing to be confused about. It's not there. And as for precision fermentation products, there are very few. The vast majority of alternative protein products that consumers are interacting with are plant-based products, um, plant-based milks, plant-based cheeses, plant-based eggs, plant-based meats, plant-based seafood. Um, but we have just done an absolutely abysmal job of marketing the category, of educating consumers, of creating the demand. And that is because a lot of founders in this space are either scientists or they are mission-led. And I would say there has been a lack of food industry talent in the space. And so we have just not been good at that. And that is why there is confusion. Just before we close this section, I'm going to ask you, but there's a whole bunch of other things going on, vertical farming, you know, rooftop farming. Do you have any comments in any of those other areas of innovation, if you may? Absolutely. There's so much going on. I mean, yes, urban farming and, and alternative ways to farm, certainly we need to look at it. It's super complicated. And very honestly, that industry, especially vertical farming, has also gone through its own hype cycle and is suffering from returns that are not there and, and a loss of faith, too much capitalization that has not been spent properly. And again, I had a fascinating conversation with a farmer who actually works now for a vertical farming company. And one of the things he said is there's just there wasn't enough farming knowledge in these companies. It was too many tech people doing food. And so again, like the importance of kind of bringing the right experience and the right talent. It's not just tech. Food is not just tech. It's a physical good. It's not a software. You cannot just apply everything you learned from SaaS building to food or everything you learned from Tesla and, and selling a car to food. So two things being different being one, food is physical, unlike software, and food is cultural and personal, unlike cars. And so that really is, was missing. So vertical farming is going through its own kind of mess there. But again, it's one of the tools in the toolbox and we need it. Other tools that I'm looking at that I think are fascinating are things around looking at crops that are affected by extreme weather, by inflation, by deforestation concerns. And you can see that there is now innovation around things like, for example, coffee-free coffee or cacao-free cacao for chocolate or oil, oils and fats grown in a lab. And I think that's very interesting. And we're going to need a lot of help from that. Coffee and chocolate and, and some of your favorite foods are just going to become more and more expensive and more and more scarce because we're just running out of the right areas on the planet that can support ideal cultivation of those crops. And so it's fascinating to see entrepreneurs really working with new ways to create the flavor and texture of chocolate or the flavor and, and properties of coffee, but without needing to grow a cacao bean or a coffee bean. One thing that I would like the audience to take away from this 
conversation with Sonali so far is the focus around customers. There are about a thousand plant-based food companies in the world and they're fighting for supermarket shelf space, they're fighting for space on the plates of customers, but they have to figure out a way to generate demand, way to meet a customer need or that a way to even understand what a customer need is and meet it. This particular food innovation may not, and I think this is an important point you make, Sonali, may not go the way other innovations have gone, which is that we see in a lot of companies dying out and only some companies remaining because food is such an important cultural ingredient in a diverse planet. There would be probably space for hundreds and thousands of plant-based companies to meet local food needs. The other sectors that you talked about, Sonali, they will also have to do the similar exercise in understanding which customer segment they're catering to and also explain their technology in a demystified way to prospective customers because, you know, people do care about what they eat. With that, I think, Jenny, you have a few questions. Yeah, Sanjay. So, you know, Sonali, it was interesting what you were saying earlier about the German retailers engaging and doing creative things. What about the rest of the existing food companies around the world? How are they engaging with these innovators? Are they investing their own money, doing their own R&D, or are they procuring these and acting as distribution partners? How do you see their role as evolving? Okay, great question. Big food companies are actually one of the most active players in this space. And honestly, there's a few reasons for that. One, if you are a big food company, you have to be looking at innovation and alternative solutions for your entire portfolio because ingredients are getting more expensive. Supply chain disruption is becoming a norm. Farming is changing. Consumers are changing, right? So big food companies, just as risk analysis, are looking at this. Two big food companies often have the resources and the the time to really invest and look at these things in a wider, more longer-term way, right? Because they're not venture-backed. They're not trying to kind of get a return in five years. They also have ready-made distribution channels, potentially retail shelf space where they can test out is something working. It's not. And we've already seen that. We've already seen big food companies partner with precision fermentation companies and test out a precision fermentation cream cheese or test out a plant-based burger or, or test out all kinds of different things and just really see what the reaction is. So if anything, big food companies are really some of the most able players in this arena where founders are often against running against so many obstacles like lack of funding, lack of distribution, lack of partners. And then you're also just seeing a lot of big food companies look partner with startups or maybe back certain startups in a CVC model, in a corporate VC model, or just a corporate innovation model, or do pilots with some of the startups. So you are seeing more and more of that. Having spoken to both big food companies and startups, the challenge is that for some startups, it can sometimes feel that they act as a bit of an R&D arm, and then they sort of get moved out once the bigger player has what they need. So it can be a risk for a startup, but there are other big food companies that really take a collaborative approach and know that there's no way that they could possibly um, have access 
to the innovation and the breadth of solutions without partnering and working with startups. Shunali, I'm wondering what the role of the state is. You again alluded to this in the context of Germany and maybe to some extent in the Scandinavian countries. What policy instruments are effective here and what's being done in that space? Sure. I mean, as I mentioned about Germany, I think we need more public nutrition and health policy that calls out the need for diet change and that kind of through different signals, like maybe changing food guidelines or food pyramids. For example, Denmark has done that. You are encouraging your population to move towards plant-rich, plant-forward diets. And that's wrapped up in health issues as well. So that's a different kettle. That's a different conversation altogether. The other thing is just, it would be fantastic to see more leadership around climate knowledge and the connection between food and climate. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a press event in Singapore about a report that came out by, it was a joint report by Rabobank and Tomasek, and which is the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund and a few other parties. And it was the first time that I really heard this kind of connection between food and climate being made, whereby one of the main presenters said, actually, we need to invest in food system change almost more than we need to invest in energy change because we're already doing that. But we can actually get a bigger bang for our emission buck if we invest in food system change. So just more of those conversations happening more government grants going to food innovation and food system change, more regulation around transparency and the true cost of food and pricing in the externalities so that it can start to be taken into consideration even at the shareholder level. Because if we are living in a world that is kind of run by shareholder capitalism, then it really matters what the returns are. And so if we're if we're then basing our decisions on artificially cheap food, that's problematic. So we need to start pricing food accurately. And that means redirecting some of the subsidies. $38 billion in subsidies are spent on meat and dairy products. And if you add in seafood, it's another tens of billions. That doesn't make any sense to me that we're subsidizing foods that are just produced in a way that is worsening the climate crisis. There is obviously a lot to learn here. Sonali, this has been fascinating talking to you. We've come to the end of the podcast. Do you have any questions for your hosts? Yeah, it's nice to ask a question on an interview. I think for both of you, my question would be, what do you think would spur diet change the most? Like, what do you think is missing in terms of kind of reducing our dependence on animal foods and livestock agriculture? I think that's a wonderful question, Sonali. I actually spend a lot of my time as a marketing professor thinking about this, and I also in my personal life thinking about this. I think there are a few drivers. One is health concerns. So it was very interesting what you said about your own personal story. It comes home to us when we suffer from health issues, which are linked to food, and then we start to investigate what's behind that. So I think health is one. Another is Perhaps our engagement with animals through our pets. When we have animals as pets, we learn about a profound paradox at the heart of our relationship with animals. We uh, love them, we admire them, but we also eat them. (laughs) And I think some of us have to grapple with that kind of a paradox. 
I think there's environment very much so. Uh, so some people come at the food issue entirely from their concern about the environment and they see the stats and the figures uh, that you mentioned at the start. Finally, there are issues to do with taste and also with price. So your point about many foods are the price does not fully reflect the cost. There are lots of externalities and they're artificially low. If the true price were known, I think that would shift people's preferences. And if the price of certain things goes up as they become scarce, I think that would also shift preferences. That's the sum and substance of my thoughts on that. So now if people have to get in touch with you, how should they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, the only social network I'm really present on is LinkedIn. So you can find me there. Otherwise, our website is greenqueen.com.hk. We have an amazing future food newsletter that comes out every week that I recommend subscribing to. Otherwise, it's at greenqueenhk on most uh, social channels if you want to follow the platform rather than me specifically. And then I, I'm only an email away. Get in touch at greenqueen.com.hk. With that, thank you very much, Sonali. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Sonali. It's been wonderful talking to you. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.